L580 AM and 90.9 FM HD3, Urbana. Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today on WILL AM 580. We're in election season, and it's money season for ads, for all the way to get us to vote for particular candidates. More money than ever being spent on political campaigns, more money than ever spent on lobbying. What's a citizen to do? Well, our guest today, Josh Silver, will be joining us to talk about his efforts and the efforts of his group, United Republic, to arrest the dominance of money in politics. Should be a great show. I hope you'll join us for the full hour. But before we go to our guests, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. NATO reports the third so-called insider attack on its troops in Afghanistan in three days. Officials say Afghan police officers killed four American troops. This brings to 51 the number of international troops killed by Afghans in uniform this year. Afghan officials claim a NATO airstrike east of Kabul killed eight women and girls last night. NPR's Soraya Sahardi-Nelson reports. Afghan officials say the women and girls were gathering brush to light fires in their homes when they were attacked by NATO planes. Their relatives carried the bodies to officials to protest the attack. Seven others were injured and were being treated at a hospital in Lahman province where the attack occurred. A spokesman for the NATO-led coalition says the strike targeting insurgents may have inadvertently struck five to eight Afghan civilians. Afghan President Hamid Karzai in a statement condemned the attack and said he was sending a special delegation to investigate. Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson, NPR News, Kabul. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations says there's no evidence that the assault on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya last week was premeditated in time to coincide with the anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Susan Rice told Fox News Sunday it appears the raid was part of a spontaneous protest against an anti-Islam video. She also said the security situation at the consulate is under review. There was a significant security presence defending our consulate and our other facility in, uh, uh, in Benghazi, uh, and that did not uh, prove sufficient to the moment. Four Americans were killed, including the U.S. ambassador to Libya. Security is tight at the Japanese embassy in Beijing. Chinese demonstrators are there to protest a dispute with Japan over some islands in the East China Sea claimed by both countries. Similar protests are being held in other Chinese cities targeting Japanese businesses. In southern Turkey, riot police used tear gas to break up a protest against the more than 80,000 Syrian refugees living along the border. NPR's Deborah Amos reports. The police bands have arrived. The riot police are in full gear. They have pulled down their gas masks as a small but vocal crowd chants in a park here. They say they are against government policy, the policy of supporting the Syrian revolt next door. They ask that the Syrian refugees be kicked out of the country. They call the camps terror camps. When riot police shot tear gas, the crowd ran for cover. In this part of Turkey, the Syrian president is more popular than the Turkish prime minister. 
These local tensions are behind an official decision to force Syrians to move out of this border province. Deborah Amos, NPR News, Antakya. This is NPR News. Cambodia's war crimes tribunal today released a former leader of the Khmer Rouge, which ruled in the 70s and caused the deaths of an estimated 1.7 million Cambodians due to execution, starvation, or overwork. Ayang Tarath served as social affairs minister. She's now 80 years old. The tribunal set up to prosecute war crimes determined that she's mentally unfit to stand trial. National Hockey League players now officially face a lockout as a deadline for a deal with the league has passed. Dan Karpinchuk reports it could be a long wait before the two sides meet again. The players won't really begin to feel the effects until October 11th. That's when the paychecks stop. The two sides could still reach a deal in the next couple of weeks and the season could still start on time. But when they left the bargaining table a few days ago, they were still miles apart on the major issue of revenue sharing and no talks have been scheduled. This will be the fourth work stoppage for the NHL in 20 years. The last one was in 2004, and it wiped out the whole season, the first North American sports league to ever cancel an entire season over a labor dispute. The lockout will have much wider consequences and will affect thousands of employees and small business owners who depend on hockey for their revenues. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Another labor dispute may soon be settled. The teachers' union in Chicago is meeting in about two hours to consider a proposed new contract. Officials will decide if they should end their week-long strike. The union says the tentative deal includes a 3% pay raise in the first year with 2% increases in the second and third years. If the strike ends, schools may reopen as soon as tomorrow. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, a source for what works in education. Learn more at edutopia.org. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. We're coming to you live today, September 16, 2012, here on WILL AM 580. Our guest today is someone who's been on the show before, an old friend of mine. Uh, Josh Silver and I, along with John Nichols, started Free Press 10 years ago, roughly. Uh, the Media Reform Organization worked together closely for many years. We still both are on the board of Free Press, but Josh has moved on in the last year uh, to bigger and better things, perhaps, but certainly different things. He is now the CEO of United Republic, the group that's committed to getting money out of politics, and he's joining us for the full hour here on Media Matters. Josh Silver, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Well, Josh, first of all, it's it's good to talk to you. It's been a, it's a little over a year now, what, a year and a half almost, that you've been with United Republic? Yeah, it's been an interesting time cooking up a, a solution to arguably the most uh, sort of uh, intractable political issue in America. Well, why don't you, for sake of listeners, let's say they've been on a three-year mission to Antarctica and Tierra del Fuego and cut off from humanity otherwise, uh, what is the the nature of this great problem? <laughs> you know, it's really hard not to notice. Uh, it's uh, All you have to do is, is, is wake up and, and tune into any kind of media, no matter how bad, and of course you can speak at length about that, and you see just uh, incredible amounts of dysfunction already. It's September, mid-September 2012. We're just entering, since the political conventions 
the two-month window where typically the vast majority of political money is spent in U.S. elections, and we have already seen more money spent by outside groups like PACs uh, than was spent in the entire 2008 presidential election season, uh, well over $300 million. We are looking at a situation where the so-called 501c groups, the political uh, dark money groups that don't have to report their donors, just two of them, one run by operative Karl Rove and the other by the infamous Koch brothers, have already, these two groups have already spent, as of the last reporting uh, cycle, uh, ProPublica reports they've spent more money than all other super PACs combined. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, we're looking at the standard uh, sort of mind-numbing uh, data about the amount of money that's being raised and spent by politicians. Barack Obama has raised $348 million to his presidential campaign, the actual campaign, not the PAC that he coordinates or the dark money groups that secretly and quietly support him. Mitt Romney has raised $193 million. So, And both of these politicians are getting majorities of this money from special interests, moneyed interests who have a stake in the outcome of their political decisions. Josh Silver, I, I just saw, saw a news report earlier this week that uh, the Obama pan campaign was trumpeting the fact that they're, the lion's share of their donors are small donors giving, I think, I forget the exact figure, but less than $100. And I think the Romney campaign made a similar type claim. Uh, is that, uh, uh, what role do small donors play in this new system we're in? Well, you know, it's it's misleading. Um, I have a breakdown right in front of me from uh, Open Secrets, which if, if people have not uh, looked at Open Secrets, I certainly recommend that you do. The, uh, it's the Center for uh, Responsive Politics. Uh, Barack Obama, as I said, has raised $358 million. Um, $137 million of that, so roughly a third of that, has come from small contributions, and $213 million have come from large. Uh, Mitt Romney, um, of his $193 million, $37 million have come in from small contributions, and 156 million from large. So what you see from the campaigns, Bob, is a lot of bravado about the fact that uh, you know that they get a lot of small contributions, and they'll always report it based on the number of contributions. But when you look at it in terms of the amount of money actually in the coffers, it's not quite as uh, a rosy a picture. Josh Silver, do you find? I mean, from my experience, my enthusiasm for donating money in 2012 to candidates is far less than it was in previous years, because I feel like whatever I give is going to be overwhelmed by some enormous super PAC on one hand, and secondly, what I give is going to go largely to play for pay for inane TV ads that would insult my intelligence, and so I just I'm, I find myself sort of being turned off to the whole thing. And I'm wondering, are you finding other small donors? Are you hearing that from them, too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're starting to see uh, an incredible uh, revolt uh, amongst the, the majority of people like you who don't give huge amounts. However, what we are also seeing are things like uh, Sheldon Allison and other uh, major super PAC donors. These are millionaires and billionaires who have a lot to gain by uh, gaming the system and, and picking a horse that wins. Uh, for them, it's just smart investment uh, because they have so much money 
they can put in a million, ten million, uh, fifteen million, and actually uh, really uh, reap huge rewards in terms of particularly tax breaks, uh, real estate, uh, you know, estate tax, um, and and other loopholes that would save them billions. But the other part I think is a bigger picture, Bob, and that is, you know, what we're looking at are are stunning and and really terrifying. Uh, a terrifying sort of trends for our nation. I mean, here we are in uh, in in the modern year, the 21st century. Uh, a, a new report that just came out last week shows that the the gap between the rich and the poor uh, is the highest since 1967, um, and and it's uh, an income is real income is falling for the middle class, and it's uh, something that has trended uh, like this for a long time, and it's just getting worse and worse. We're looking at um, a statistic, the average annual income of the top 1% of the American population is $717,000. The average income for the other 99% all rounded together is $51,000. But what it, does, what it gets to here is net value. So that's income. But in terms of what people own and actually have, the top 1% are worth about 84 million dollars and about 70 times worth uh, that of the entire other 99 percent and so what we're seeing is is a kind of division in wealth and, and net holdings that we haven't seen actually since the 19th century since the progressive era that broke apart uh, uh you know and, and instituted the first round of progressive reforms uh, uh more than 100 years ago and and so a lot of people are saying well isn't that time now and that was probably your next question. Why haven't we seen uh, a kind of a backlash that would allow just, or it's not a right-left thing, but just ordinary middle-class people and working-class people to reclaim their government, to, to push back on corruption and actually get policies that help people get health care or have a clean air and clean water, basic, uh, basic rights. And the answer is found, I think, in Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson's book, which you, have you had them on the show, Bob? I have indeed. Yeah, and so your listeners know. I mean, the infrastructure that's been created uh, in Washington since the 1970s is stunning and really blocks the kind of cyclical reforms that we've seen historically in our nations, uh, you know, in our, in our government, in the balance between, between moneyed interests and the people's interests. Our guest today, Josh Silver, the CEO of United Republic, the campaign finance election reform uh, group, just a year or two old. We'll be talking about Josh's work with United Republic during the show. If you'd like to call in with a question or comment here to WILL AM 580, the number 217-333-9455, toll-free number 1-800-222-9455. So, Josh Silver, why uh, why did you decide to start a new group? Uh, what does United Republic do that other people weren't doing? And what, what sort of work is United Republic doing to try to tackle the, the problems you're outlining? Well, I, I'm going to get to that in a second, but what, okay. one thing I'm going to do that not enough of your guests do, Bob, is turn a question back to you, because as your listeners know, you're probably you know one of the top three experts on media in, in the country. And, and the, the, the short, the beginning of the reason why I left media reform and moved into money and politics is I think if, if you look at the problems facing our country across the board, whether it be national security, environment, health care, economic justice, you find that there are really two main uh, 
structural issues that drive the outcome of political debates. One is the, the need for a public that actually knows what's going on and is, is, has access to facts and can make political decisions, like who should become president, for example, based on facts rather than propaganda. And you also need to have a political system that pushes into power representatives, politicians, who are representing ordinary people and not just plutocrats, as they tend to do today. Vast majorities, I believe, of both major political parties are, are, are beholden to special interests. And what I found is that uh, the media space, while it needs a lot of work, and Free Press is doing great work, uh, for too long there was a lack of a, uh, of a sufficient uh, of a sufficient uh, solution being presented on the money and politics side. But before I get to that, I want to ask you, Bob, for what is your what is your take historically about the interplay of media and 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 media reform and money and politics and money and politics reform? Well, I, I think Josh, and we've talked about this uh, off air, obviously in the past, which is probably why you're trying to turn this into the Josh Silver show. Um, <laughs> I think uh, they're closely related. They're, they're both structural requirements of a self-governing society, understood that way in our Constitution and in all democratic theory, and they go hand in hand, And uh, which is why I think your transition from a media reform organization to a work on a campaign finance and election organization is, is really a seamless transition, because ultimately they are first cousins, if not actual uh, siblings. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, and one of the things I always tell people is for, for the longest time, uh, and I used to be in money and politics, for the longest time people always said, hey, no matter what issue you care about, environment, health care, women's rights, money in politics needs to be your second, or media reformers often say media needs to be your second. The fact is, the American people need to stop thinking that way, and we need to start thinking about our most important issues that we care about dearly. Say I'm an environmentalist, or I'm interested in, in government waste issues. Media and money in politics, they have to be like your other kids. You don't love one kid more than the other. They're, they're, they all have to thrive and succeed or else the whole thing is 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 lost and, and and people need to make that shift but as far as what i saw in this space in the money and politics space when i came into it almost a year and a half ago is that you basically got if you really look at if you look at this issue it breaks down into three uh, excuse me four categories four categories where it's broken and it needs fixing one is how are elections financed how are campaigns financed? How are uh, independent expenditures like super PACs or 501c4s, how are they financed and how can they spend their money? That's number one. Number two is lobbying. What are the rules that govern who and uh, what may lobby and in what manner? So uh, what kind of gifts may they give to politicians or uh, other than money? Or what kind of revolving door rules? Revolving door meaning what are the rules that say if I've been a senator or a senator's chief of staff, how long do I have to wait or don't I have to wait before I go lobby that very same senatorial office on, a, on an issue for a, a major company or a union or whoever? The third issue is voting in elections. The third is sort of, you know, what are the rules around uh, voting, you know, election day, who votes, who doesn't, prison, you know, felons. In Australia, for example, you actually get fined if you don't vote. Um, and, and what are the actual uh, voting systems themselves? The Electoral College was, was created 
uh, hundreds of years ago. Does it still work? Uh, or many argue, I think, correctly that the presidential election system makes it so that a handful of states like North Carolina or Colorado or Arizona uh, or Ohio are suddenly intensely important and everyone else is not, and, and that that is not a correct system. And so that's voting in elections. And then the fourth issue, so again, campaign finance, lobbying, voting in elections. And the fourth issue is actually very wonky, but very important. And that is political uh, legislative procedures. So things like uh, the filibuster or things like uh, what are the rules within Senate uh, or House committees? Who may call witnesses? Who may introduce legislation? Uh, and, a, and a former congressman named Mickey Edwards just came out with a book recently that gets into this, and he makes good points. But the point is, is that when I was looking at the field of money in politics, I, I was not seeing a proposal, a sort of ubiquitous legislative proposal that pulls together the best ideas from across this grab bag of, of issues that I just outlined, puts them into one major package and says, this is what it's going to take to actually have a system that works, and we're not going to do it by passing one law that says we are going to disclose all money or one law that creates public funding of elections, both great ideas, by the way. But it needs to be pushed together in one audacious package and organized with people on the right and the left and the middle, because the fact is it just keeps happening again and again. Two days ago, an Associated Press poll came out that said more than 80% of Americans back limits on corporate super PAC spending in campaigns, or more than 80% across the political spectrum. A month ago, Americans were asked by Gallup uh, what would be the most important issue for the next president, and uh, Jobs was first, as always. Second was corruption and the, the corrupting influence of money in politics. So this is a, this is a general strategy that our organization has, has put together, and after the election, we're going to see, and I won't, I'm not going to tilt my, my cards, I'm not going to say what it's called, but you will see a major national campaign launched with celebrities, with people from all the way from the Tea Party to, uh, to Occupy Wall Street, pushing a comprehensive legislative agenda to fix this thing. Our guest, Josh Silver, the CEO of United Republic, joining us today in Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. We're live today, so the phone lines are open at 217-333-9455. Our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to our first caller, line one, Champaign County. You're on the air. Hi. I wanted to follow up on what the FCC ruling did and also uh, thank your efforts at Free Press for uh, having this handbook for uh, looking at public files. Uh, I actually have the idea and uh, haven't done a lot of the groundwork yet of having a, uh, an organized group to um, go to the um, – media outlets and, and ask them for their public files and uh, the uh, um, I mean anybody can do it but it might be nice to coordinate it and I was thinking at the IMC website ucimc.org having a, a a link for information and coordinating it through a volunteer spot or something like that I think this is being done around the country so maybe the handbook has been enhanced since the last time I looked at it but at freepress.net there's this great handbook on how to approach your uh, media outlets because uh, a lot of places, the media has already, uh, the ads have already been bought. They're totally saturated already for the all the month of October, is what I understand. And the, the business about the FCC ruling is the 100 major media markets. 
uh, that where they have to put up that information. And I'm wondering how how that whether they're still um, whether they're complying with that, and and whether you can assess whether this uh, this great activity is is uh, is being done across the country, and whether I I think it's probably compiled at Open Secrets or Sunlight. Uh, so could you um, fill sure. that in, and, and maybe uh, maybe people can check around here uh, at um, IMC and see if uh, if we're going to get that off the ground for a local uh, local action of that sort. Thank, thank you, thank you, much, caller. Uh, Josh, why don't you give a little background uh, for folks who might not be familiar with what the caller was talking about? Yeah, so this is this is really interesting. Now, uh, for for the longest time, really since the creation of of television and radio, uh, uh, well, it, it, there's been a, re- a requirement that uh, it doesn't go all the way back. But it goes back a long way that the Federal Communications Commission required television and radio stations to actually post information about the political advertisements, really all advertisements, bought on their air. Of course, these are the public airwaves being used for free by these companies. Um, and and uh, until recently, until about around August 1st, these were kept in paper files in television and radio stations across the country. And if you wanted to know who was buying ads on these stations, you had to actually physically go into these stations and ask for these records, and the, and the stations are required to give them to you. Well, in the era of the Internet, this is absolutely foolish, of course, because this can all be made available online, and it can make more transparent those who are buying political ads. Well, here's where the uh, Obama Federal Communications Commission, headed by Julius Janikowski. It's a perfect exhibit A of money and politics corruption. This uh, idea of putting this information online, of course, was was aggressively opposed by the National Association of Broadcasters, a very powerful group in Washington. Let me just ask, why would they aggressively oppose it? Well, because it's it's really, uh, you know, this is the bread and butter for these these stations and, and What's happened over the years, because the National Association of Broadcasters is so powerful, is that anything that's even remotely distasteful for a major television or radio station, they can generally kill uh, and, 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 and elude that requirement by just buying politicians, buying regulators, and then you know, in order to do that, paying for these fake astro, you know, these so-called astroturf, fake grassroots groups to go out and drum up opposition to regulation, buy ads to oppose politicians uh, in their elections who, who are not friendly to, to uh, broadcasters. And, and, and what we're seeing, though, in the, in the case that the caller is, is referencing, it's exhibit A of money and politics corruption, because the Obama administration promised they'd do something about it. The FCC chairman, Julius Janikowski, did. And guess what? He actually did two things. One, decided that it was actually only the top 50 markets, the only top 50 largest uh, media markets in the U.S. that would have to post their information online. And number two, when they did this around uh, uh, August 1st, uh, they actually were not required to report information on political spending before that date. So what we saw is a whole round of of, uh, media reports about a month and a half ago came out saying, well, this isn't that impressive yet because we don't even have information on the hundreds of millions of dollars that have already been spent. And, of course, those 50 markets that are reporting tend to not be in the swing states where the vast bulk of political advertising is taking place. So New York and L.A. and Dallas and Houston aren't, and Philadelphia aren't getting this money. No, and so it's just another example of where 
every time, whether it be a Republican or a Democrat, when it really comes down to it, particularly on media issues, but across the board, right? I mean, look, this is a, a President Obama who, who actually uh, refused to follow through with his own Environmental Protection Agency, making modest changes to improve smog regulations in cities across the country, and he shot that down. Why money and politics? Why did he only do the top 50 markets? money in politics. And that happens across the board. Why are the banks still too big to fail? Just before we went on the air today, I was looking at a story which shows that, uh, that most of the banks that were the, behind the catastrophe of 2008 are actually larger than they were before. That we've got things like uh, Wells Fargo has doubled in size. Bank of America's assets have increased uh, from $2.1 trillion uh, uh, from 1.8 trillion to 2.1 trillion, um, J.P. Morgan Chase is nearly three times as big as it was in 2002. Across every issue, why can't uh, why can't our our government actually negotiate drug prices? I mean, this is across the board. It comes back to money and politics. Well, let's go back to our phone lines right now. We've got line three, Coles County. You're on the air with Josh Silver. Yes, thanks for taking my call. Uh, earlier, you talked about four things to be focused on that would make, uh, I guess, politics more democratic in our country. And one of them was campaign campaign finance. And my question for you is that it seemed to me that even take all the four of those together, especially when it comes to campaign finance, all we'll get is public financing of Republicans and Democrats. And when it seems to me that when it comes to Republicans and Democrats, that they're not that different on economic policy. So... Maybe I misunderstood you, uh, and you clarify what you're saying, or if you would, you know, just answer that question. And, and before you, you point out the Green Party as an exception, because I realize they are getting some public finance, I want to point out that uh, we may be the only three people in the audience right now that uh, has even heard about the Green Party presidential candidates. I've not heard them mentioned at all on any media, including NPR. Okay, well, I'll ring off and listen. Well, thank you very much, caller. Josh Silver? Well, so there's a couple answers to that. First of all, as a starting point, um, if, we can, if we can seriously clamp down on lobbying rules and revolving door policies, if we can create public funding of elections, if we can do things like prohibit politicians from soliciting money from those they regulate, if we can limit every lobbyist from giving more than 100 bucks, um, and if we can make all political money transparent, the, the, uh, the logic goes that that in and of itself, creating a public funding system that gets billions of dollars into the system from small donors of $100 or less, you're, gonna, you're going to transform over time both major parties. That it, this is sort of a chicken and egg question. Are the, are the major parties intrinsically uh, sold out to special interests and not, uh, not acting on behalf of the, the public because of their DNA, or is it because of, of, of a campaign finance system that makes them, as Larry Lessig, the professor from Harvard, says, dependent on special interests and thus hold beholden? I would argue that you would see a, a, a vast improvement in the politicians within those parties if they're beholden to small donors. But I think your, your question also leads to another truism, and that is when the founders of the United States created our current republic and the current system of a, of a legislature rather than a parliament, what it did is it made it virtually impossible to have a proportional representation, to, to easily allow entrance to third, fourth, and fifth parties. 
there is, incidentally, uh, if you go to fairvote.org, you can find, again, that's fairvote.org, there is some really creative ideas from a guy named Rob Ritchie and his team about so-called choice voting or proportional representation that takes the form of, uh, for example, maybe turning this, the state of Illinois into four House, uh, four congressional districts, and then each of those districts votes uh, in a block, and then each of those blocks sends three or four politicians to to Washington. Um, in that way, uh, you can actually you can very creatively create a proportional system, but when you talk about how are you going to actually make that proposal reality, that's a good question because I don't see a way to do that in the short term unless we can get money, big money's influence reduced so that we actually create a, a smart uh, and, and enlightened uh, elect, uh, body politic, and then we might be able to see things like this happen. You know, Josh Silver, in the debates over establishing the Constitution uh, and in the very early republic, and in the Constitution itself, uh, there's absolutely no mention of political parties. Uh, they weren't really thought of in any uh, significant way, and to the extent they were, the, as factions, they were disparaged. Uh, so while the laws do uh, lend themselves to making it virtually impossible to start a third party in the United States, that wasn't a conscious design of, of the, the framers. Uh, so, I mean, but how important is breaking the two-party duopoly so there can be more competition uh, in your view, for the, the, the governance of this country? Or is, do you think the two-party system could get the job done satisfactorily if we nailed everything else like campaign finance and lobbying? I think the answer to your question, Bob, is much more practical than I would like, but that's, what, that's the world we've been handed. And that is getting politicians to change the rules so that it allows easy entry for third, fourth, fifth-party candidates is, is unfortunately impossible in my view because you're asking politicians to fundamentally alter the very system that affords them power and there's virtually no incentive for them to do so so then the question becomes well okay so josh you're about to present some really huge audacious uh campaign finance reform and lobbying reform proposal why not just include that in it and and what we're finding is I believe the only way we're going to fix this thing is if we can uh, take advantage of, of, of essentially five sort of strategic assumptions. One is that uh, that we we have to make this a, a right-left issue, and it it appeals across the political spectrum, as I said before. And and this country, when you ask Americans how they self-identify, one third conservative, one third moderate, and one third liberal is generally how the country breaks down. And we have to take advantage of that. If you include too many of these kind of uh, sweeping proposals, you start to actually lose uh, support from various factions within the, the, the larger body politic. And I don't think we're going to be able to pass anything unless we keep those together uh, in some fashion. But that's number one. It has to be right-left. Number two, um, it, we, we're going to have to be comprehensive. And I, and I think I, I, I outlined at the beginning of the show that we can't just go one-off reforms. We have to put them, many of them together, not all, but many together in one. Um, number three, politicians are only going to do this if we force them to. And that means that this effort to, to reclaim our government is going to require a campaign that actually has the money and the skill to unseat opponents of reform. It means that we're going to be spending the next decade actively unseating, using the same kind of tactics that are demonstrated to work, advertisements, grassroots organizing, uh, 
to, to get members of both party out of office who oppose us. Um, and we have to do, and I think at the end of the day, history shows that we have to expect fundamental reform to campaign finance and the buying of, of, of elections is likely going to get fixed in a major moment of political crisis. I think we have to understand that, that our goal, our mission, is to create a comprehensive solution with ubiquitous, huge support across the board, and then at that moment of crisis, trust that it will get taken up and passed. Our guest, Josh Silver, the CEO of United Republic. This is Media Matters. I'm Bob McChesney. Phone lines are open if you'd like to call in with a question or comment at 217-333-9455, toll-free 1-800-222-9455. Josh, you've talked a lot about lobbying. Everyone hears that term. What does it mean, and what is the real world of how policies are made in Washington? Uh, how are they influenced by lobbies? What are lobbies? Who has lobbies? I mean, how important is lobbying to the whole picture of what you're talking about at United Republic? En- enormously. And, you know, I, sometimes people roll their eyes when I tell them. But, you know, one of our most important uh, helpers, um, Pro Bono, who helped us craft this uh, our proposal, is, is Jack Abramoff, the notorious sort of super lobbyist casino Jack, who um, it, it, we believe having him involved in this, you know, he spent three and a half years in prison. Uh, he came out and he's been spending the past year talking about how we have to fix this system. And knowing him, I actually believe it's genuine. I believe that Jack Abramoff genuinely wants to, um, wants to make good on his name and, and sort of make up for, for past mistakes. And one of the and other lobbyists have been crucial to crafting our proposal because what we're looking to do it's like hiring the FBI regularly hires computer hackers that who are just out of jail uh, to try to break into their system same thing here but we've got to do the things that actually stop people like Jack Abramoff and other uh, other lobbyists in their tracks so again things like prohibiting members of Congress from accepting donations from those interests they regulate uh, closing the revolving door. Currently, it's two years if you're a senator before you can become a lobbyist, and one year for a House member. Make it seven years and, and, and make a, a, a also prevent your senior staff from moving on to K Street lobbying for five years and redefine lobbying so they can't use loopholes like uh, Newt Gingrich and Tom Daschle do, saying that they're just advisors. Um, you have to limit the amount of money that lobbyists and their representatives can contribute to candidates, uh, and as well as political parties and political committees. You have to end the secret uh, secret lobbyists like Newt Gingrich, who I mentioned. Uh, you have to make all money uh, transparent. Uh, you have to redefine uh, the coordination between a candidate campaign and a super PAC. Uh, who can forget at the Democratic convention this year? Rahm Emanuel, who was one of the, I believe, a co-chair with Obama uh, on Obama's campaign, uh, then uh, steps down from the Obama campaign and the next day announces he's raising money for Obama's super PAC, even though the Supreme Court, in allowing super PACs and their Citizens United decision, said there can't be any coordination. Well, that makes a mockery of that rule. We have to get the 501C dark money, secret money groups out of elections, um, and we have to get uh, public funding uh, into the system because if we're getting all this bad money out, you've got to figure out a way to get clean money in 
And the only way to do it is by creating a public funding system. You know, everyone talks, Josh Silver, about the Citizens United case, uh, that this is the open the door to the onslaught of money that's really made the situation uh, what it is today, and to many like yourself, uh, unacceptable. What exactly did Citizens United do, uh, the, and what did it not do? And what exactly was its contribution? And how do we, is, there, is a constitutional amendment the only solution to get around it at this point? Well... That's a good question. I mean, the constitutional amendment is the only way that you can actually limit the amount of money that goes to these independent groups and is spent by them. And, and that's really a tragedy because the constitutional amendment is incredibly important. There's great groups working on these strategies like Move to Amend and Public Citizen. Part of the reason we're doing what we're doing is not because constitutional amendments are bad, but because there's so many other good groups doing good work on it. But there's also a huge bar to success here. You need two-thirds of the U.S. Congress to pass a constitutional amendment, and you need uh, three-quarters of the state legislatures to ratify it. That is a massive uh, a massive bar to, to hurdle, and you didn't even see that with the Equal Rights Act. So uh, it's, it's, absolutely, uh, it's absolutely essential that there be, a, you know, as I like to say, if you're at Mount Everest base camp and you're trying to climb Mount Everest, which really is akin to passing sweeping substantive reform in money and politics, and you have enough people and enough resources, well, aren't you going to send a couple or three different parties up different routes in case one has, a, has trouble? That's what we're trying to do here. Well, what did Citizens United do exactly? What was that ruling? So the ruling was it, it had to do with a documentary that was debated as to whether it was a, explicitly opposing, in, a, in, a, in a, an electoral way, opposing the candidacy of Hillary Clinton or whether it was simply educational. And this is a problem with limiting political spending, of course, is that you have the Federal Elections Commission having to decide, well, this is a documentary that's just purely educational, or this is a political ad and needs to be counted as political spending and have certain rules and limitations applied to it. There's no doubt, you know, when, when, when opponents of reform talk about this conundrum, this tricky business of deciding what's electioneering and what's public education, it, it, there's no doubt that's very difficult to do. That issue was what came into question around Citizens United. And what the Supreme Court did basically is said, well, those who fund uh, any kind of message that goes to the American people, they need to be able, their, their First Amendment free rights uh, require that, that they be able to do so at will without limitation, because not doing that would be us impinging on their rights. And, and, and essentially they, they put uh, along with that, this notion that corporations have the same rights to speech as people. You know, and they did it implicitly, not explicitly, but it, implicitly by including corporations as those who have the free right to spend at will. Um, and the problem with that, of course, you know, showed itself in Montana recently, where Montana about 100 years ago, some copper barons had bought the Montana legislature. They literally decided where the state capital would be. They, they, they literally had um, their, their senators were owned by, by different warring copper kings, they were called. And they, they imposed in the state of Montana basic limits to corporate spending in Montana elections. And that did a huge job in actually reducing uh, corruption in Montana. Now, the Montana 
state Supreme Court essentially upheld its current rules recently and said, forget you, U.S. Supreme Court. You don't know what you're doing. This is a terrible ruling. We like our, our, our contribution limits. Thank you very much. And then the U.S. Supreme Court, in turn, uh, overturned Montana, and now it's a free-for-all in Montana as well. So Citizens United was a horrible decision. You cannot reverse it without a constitutional amendment. And so the best thing to do is fight it with a constitutional amendment and simultaneously do what I'm describing, which is pass sweeping legislation that gets to the problem by doing things like limiting how super PACs can coordinate with candidate campaigns, changing how 501c uh, organizations like uh, Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS operates so that it can't just run into elections and spend money willy-nilly like it does today, uh, and make sure that the Federal Elections Commission actually enforces the rules. Josh Silver, are there any uh, office holders today, specifically in Congress, uh, who are championing champions of this cause? Who are, oh, who, oh, yeah. Who, who are the good guys who are, in your view, the good guys who are really serious about this issue and understand that it's like job one? There's a bunch of them. Uh, 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 Representative Sarbanes has just, just recently put forward a, a sweeping proposal, which is incredibly important. Um, we saw, uh, of course, Bernie Sanders. Uh, there's there's a there's a, actually a long list that you can get to if you just go to unitedrepublic.org and you can see now one of the challenges of course is that uh, is that there's literally more than a dozen different members of Congress who have proposed uh, fixes from legislative to constitutional amendment and they're all different from each other and this is one of the problems that we continue to see with this issue of money and politics is that there's a real lack and within the public interest community there's three different constitutional amendment proposals that have been proposed aside from those proposed by uh... members of congress so there's been a real challenge a very difficult time here in in rallying uh, both congress and the public interest community behind one or two key sort of uh... reforms and that's one of the things that we're trying to do Let's go to our phone lines again. Our guest, Josh Silver, the CEO of United Republic. We're talking about taking the money out of politics or getting our democracy back in the hands of citizens or in the hands of citizens, depending on how one wants to look at it. Let's now go to line one, Champagne. You're on the air with Josh Silver. Yeah, hi. I don't have a question, just a comment. I'm really excited to hear um, the things you're saying, and I'll be interested and excited to see what you've got coming out this fall. I think that, you know, many, many people, as you've already noted, feel this way. And I think the biggest problem is, you know, a lot of people are busy trying to do jobs and raise their kids and pay their bills, and they don't really, you know, they, they, don't, they don't feel, they don't know how they can go about making a difference or how they can go about changing. I mean, we've put these people into power that we initially trusted, and obviously a lot of things have changed in the last 30 and 40 years. And um, I just think that, that, you know, it's really great to hear that there's something going on that maybe people, you know, can get behind and and still be able to, you know, do everything they have to do with their daily lives. Because I think a lot of people, you know, are fed up. So uh, that's all my, my comment. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, caller. And, Josh, let me add on here. I got an email from a caller similar to that one. Uh, with a similar sentiment and said, but had a specific question to add on to it, which was, 
Josh, what is the best effort that one individual, somewhere between writing a letter and devoting a whole life career to the area, uh, can do to help your work and the efforts to have campaign finance reform? It seems that there are thousands of people who give a few hours here and there to help the movement, but can't commit to more than that. It would be amazing if this time could be harvested. Joshua, so your comments. I'm glad you asked. That's perfect. Well, first, for the, for, to the woman who just called in, um, here, here. I mean, I think what we're seeing is there's, there's a real empowerment to this, this kind of light bulb moment that people are having across the country saying, you know, as important as my top issues are, and I named them earlier, whether it's uh, health care or women's rights or environment or, or government waste or what have you, uh, I've, got a, I've got a stop, drop, and roll here. I've got a, you know, the, the, the entire system is, 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 is stacked against me. It's like the umpires are all, are all making every call for the opposite team, and we need new umpires. And, and once you realize that, and you really can, can drop what you're doing and, and move to these structural issues of money and politics and media, it's, it's really actually empowering. I've spent my whole life doing it. And it really makes you realize that it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the importance of the other issues. Now, those other issues are incredibly important. And thank goodness there's amazing people working on them. But the fact is, is that the amount of money and the amount of people working directly on those other uh, issues is, is exponentially higher than the amount of money and the amount of organizing happening on money and politics and media. And that's why we have such a problem. As far as what you can do, first go to unitedrepublic.org, sign up at the top of the page, or there's a banner that comes out that says, I want to be part of the solution. And then what you're going to find is actually next week, we are going to do what's called a soft launch of our big proposal. We're going to be asking our, our members, and you will become a member for free just by giving us uh, your, your zip code and email. Uh, and, and we're going to be looking for citizen co-sponsors of this, of this rather ambitious proposal. And our effort is to gather one million citizen co-sponsors of this bold new proposal that you'll learn more about. Um, and if you sign up, you can learn about it, but then there's all kinds of ways to get really involved, from becoming a so-called super activist, where you're going out and recruiting lots of citizen co-sponsors, to do it, working with us on Election Day, um, to working us, with us on November 13th, when we're going to hard launch the whole thing post-election, when everyone's feeling dirty and needs to clean up after one of the ugliest, uh, probably the ugliest from a money and politics point of view, election in our nation's history. Um, and it's going to be very exciting. Josh Silver, our guest today on Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. This is WILL AM 580. We've got a few minutes left in the program. Let's go now to a caller from Canada here to talk to us. Josh Silver, here he goes. Canada, you're on the air. I guess Canada is not on the air. We've lost Canada. That's a shame. Uh, sorry about that, Canada. Josh, let's, you know, on the website, one of the things you do at United Republic is talk tangibly about how media and, or excuse me, how money and politics shapes fundamental policy issues in ways uh, that people might not understand. They might intuitively understand it, but they don't really know the details. One of the areas you talk about is the environment. How does, how does money and politics affect uh, environmental policies? Well, let's look at let's look at climate change. I mean, here here we have an issue that there's just no doubt in anyone's mind that you know we're we are in a in a horrible place, and we have one major political party that doesn't even admit it's happening. Now, that flies in the face of 99 percent of all scientific data in the world, 
And and when that kind of when there's such a, a, a disconnect between and now of course that's the Republicans that don't agree that don't even admit that it's a problem. And then of course you have the Democrats who won't do anything about it, right? You have a President Obama who said he would take a lead on this issue when he was a candidate and he's done virtually nothing on the issue. Um, well, when there's that kind of disconnect between reality um, and, and what's happening politically, then there has to be a structural flaw. Um, I think there's nobody better on this issue than Bill McKibben uh, at 350.org, uh, who throws out some just stunning, stunning statistics. June uh, of this year, June 2012, broke or tied 3,215 high-temperature records across the United States, which followed the warmest May on record uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, that's the 327th consecutive m- uh, month in which temperature of the globe exceeded the 20th century average. Um, and, and it's stunning. Last month, or it's now it's two months ago, uh, there was a quiet meeting in Rio for the 20th uh, anniversary reprise of the uh, 1992 Environmental Summit, uh, and it accomplished nothing. And unlike uh, George H.W. Bush, who flew to that event in 1992 as president, Barack Obama did not even attend. So, I mean, what we're seeing is we're seeing that, that our country and our world is moving towards a place of no return on, on, on climate change. And we have leadership of both parties unwilling to even touch it. And, and this, is a, this is a terrifying reality because it's piled on top of a health care system that's the most expensive in the world, on top of a system of education that's being starved to death and, 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 and feeding out Americans who are even less critical thinking than the generation before and unable to be part of the solution. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's, you know, it, it really gets back to the, the issue, the reason why you had me on the show, Bob, and that is, like, we are in a situation today where and Bill, uh, legendary Bill Moyers, uh, journalist Bill Moyers, talks about this all the time, where we are at a point where if we don't fix these structural problems and replace the lobbyists and the plutocrats and the billionaires with regular people at the table where the most critical decisions are being made, both in Washington and in state houses across the country, we are going to lose this experiment we call the United States. That is not hyperbolic. We are going to see more economic crashes. We're going to see more division of wealth. We're going to see more climate disaster. We're going to see more suffering, more inability for Americans to get basic health care. We're going to see the numbers which keep going up of, of Americans. It's 40-something million Americans are living in poverty, and that's at $11,000 a year for an individual and $22,000 for a family of four. If you make more than that, you're not even poor, according to the study. This country is in pain, and we have to fix it, and this is the way to do it. But, Josh, who, who's the money behind uh, trying to make climate change not an issue? I mean, what, what, why is the Republican Party, which, you know, five or ten years ago, mo- many of its leaders were actually talking about this issue. Newt Gingrich is doing advertisements with Nancy Pelosi on the importance of the issue. John McCain acknowledges the issue. What is the money that created this shift? Um, it's it's all on OpenSecrets.org. I mean, what we're we're looking at when you look at, for example, uh, if you use a Barack Obama as a as a as a bellwether, that you know he's, he's gotten ten million dollars from the communications 
industry. He's gotten $12 million. This is just to his campaign. This is not to independent expenditures. $12 million to the, from banks and insurance and real estate companies. He's gotten $15 million from lawyers and lobbyists. Um, you know, he, he's, he's, he's raking it in from all sides. Mitt Romney, uh, he's getting a, a huge amount of money from banks. Uh, the, his top five contributors are, are from the, fi- the five of the largest banks in the country. Um, and so across the board, when you look at where the, the politicians, both leading the party and members of Congress and the parties are getting their money, the biggest donors are the biggest uh, industries with the deepest pockets who are winning the day on virtually every policy debate. You know, you talk about this being a nonpartisan uh, issue. And in one level, of course, it's nonpartisan. Everyone's affected and uh, everyone wants clean governance. But at the same time, you talk about the Republican Party uh, as being just unabashedly uh, embracing this money to the point that it's even rejecting climate science. Uh, Is it truly nonpartisan? I watched both conventions and I didn't get the sense there was any hesitation about embracing corporate interests as the the proper interests of the country in the Republican Party? Well, you know, I I think it depends on how you look at it, Bob. For for me, I'm all about fixing it. That's all I really care about. I mean, I I, want to fix the problem. And when you look at it from, because, you know, we could could talk about the problem itself till we're blue in the face. And when you look at the efforts to actually fix the problem, for the most part, both parties are 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 are, are no shows, and and in that respect, it, you know, it's one thing to bluster about things, but it's another thing to actually do them. So yes, you do see more campaign finance reform uh, speakers, advocates within the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. But when you actually get to who's buying who, and you look at the campaign finance data, you see both parties flooded with special interest money. And when you look at what they actually do and what they actually accomplish, they are both just failing miserably to uphold even the most basic public interest protections. Remember, the finance reform that came, uh, the financial package, the the Dodds uh, Act that happened after the big collapse was spearheaded by the Democrats, and it's been an utter failure. And as I said before, the banks are bigger than ever. So in that in that regard, both both parties are absolutely failing. Josh Silver, we've only got a little less than a minute left, so I'd like you just to have this time again to recap what listeners who care about the issue of money in politics, campaign finance reform, you know, what they can do, where United Republic fits in. I, I would encourage everybody uh, who's listening right now, go to unitedrepublic.org and, and really do a gut check. And because the reality is, is when the young people ask about our country and they ask, are we going to be okay? Is this country going to be, uh, is, is this world going to be okay in 50 or 100 years? The way things are going from unnecessary wars to financial collapse to poverty to health care crises, it's, it's mortifying and it, it, is, it is sober and it requires sweeping, decisive, real action. And the only way we're going to accomplish that is if we get corruption out of politics, if we get politicians dependent on you, the people listening to this show, and other ordinary Americans and not billionaires. And and together, I really do believe we can do it. Josh Silver, our guest today, thank you so much for joining us, uh, taking an hour out of your weekend and away from your family. Good luck with your work, Josh. Thanks, Bob. 
Uh, I'm Bob McChesney. I want to thank Christina Williams, my producer, Kyle Kroha, my engineer, and everyone at WILL for their great support of the show. I'll be back in 167 hours with another program. Until then, everyone, have a great week. Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. This is Illinois Public Media, W I L.